Welcome to Southeast Asia Radio, a podcast by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is April 14th, 2022. Every two weeks on Thursday, we'll be bringing you the latest security, political, and economic news from Southeast Asia. We'll cover everything you could ever want to know about Southeast Asia. We're talking geopolitics, South China Sea, COVID-19 recovery, international trade, democracy, and human rights, everything under the sun. On today's show, the intensity and the energy and the emotions in the rallies. This is the first time they've seen this high energy, high level of involvement. That was Marita Svitug, editor at large of Rappler, one of the Philippines' most popular news outfits. She discusses with co host Greg Poling, director of the Southeast Asia Program and Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative here at CSIS, along with Elena Noor the Director of Political Security Affairs at Asia Society Policy Institute, how the imminent presidential election in the Philippines has become increasingly tight, with the current vice president closing the gap between herself and the son of Philippines' former dictator. We're so happy to have you all here with us, so let's get to it. First, the headlines. Every episode will feature a different member of the CSIS Southeast Asia team to help read the latest news coming out of Southeast Asia. Today, I have with me Danielle Fallon, the program coordinator and research assistant for the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Good morning, everyone. Hey, Danielle. How's it going today? Good. You know, I'm highly caffeinated and I am pumped and ready to get started. (laughs) All right. Well, since you're so pumped, uh, why don't you get us started off with the first story? Great. So Vietnam's largest conglomerate, VinGroup, registered an IPO in the United States for its automotive unit, VinFast. Based on the IPO filing to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, we could see VinFast shares being listed by the end of the year. If successful, this would be the first major listing for a Vietnamese company in the United States. Wow, that's a big deal for Vietnam. But is it a big deal for the United States? It's a pretty big deal. Although the size of the IPO is still unclear, reports have suggested that the offering could raise as much as $3 billion. Also, the IPO is the only one part of the puzzle. Last month, VinFast signed a preliminary deal in North Carolina to invest approximately $2 billion to build a factory for electric cars, buses, and batteries. Construction of the factory should begin this year and is expected to finish by July 2024. Once completed, the factory is expected to produce 150,000 electric SUVs per year, providing North Carolina with over 7,000 jobs in the process. So what has the Biden administration's response been to this news? I think it would be fair to say that the Biden administration is pumped over the news. Attracting investment from clean manufacturing businesses has been a policy aim for Biden, who signed an executive order last year to get 50% electric vehicle sales share by 2030. Awesome. So in other green energy news, the Department of Commerce recently announced that it will investigate claims that Chinese solar panels and solar panel components are being exported through Southeast Asian countries, specifically Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, and Thailand, in order to circumvent anti-dumping and countervailing duties uh, that are imposed on Chinese solar industry. So these duties have been in place since 2012, but the investigation comes as a response to a petition filed in February by a California-based solar power company called Oxen Solar. 
The petition claims that the Chinese solar companies moved to Southeast Asia to circumvent these duties. And the investigation is going to focus on whether this is the purpose of moving operations to Southeast Asia. So now turning to Ukraine. Yes, unfortunately, it's unavoidable. Last week, the UN General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. Danny, can you tell us a little bit more about the vote and how the Southeast Asian countries are forming their positions around this? Yes. So on April 7th, the UN General Assembly suspended Russia from the UN Human Rights Council over reports of human rights violations in Ukraine. This action received just a few supporting votes from Southeast Asia. Only the Philippines, Myanmar, and Timor-Leste voted in favor of the resolution to suspend Russia's UNHRC membership. Most, including Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, and Thailand, abstained while Vietnam and Laos, which have deeper historical, economic, and security ties with Russia, voted no. So among these votes uh, within the Southeast Asian countries, which country do you think stood out the most? Singapore's abstention was definitely notable. Singapore has been vocal in its condemnation of Russia's aggression in Ukraine since the evasion, both inside and outside of the UN. Before and after the vote, Singapore's representative strongly condemned Russia's action in Ukraine and called for all parties to cooperate with an independent commission of inquiry on reported human rights violations in Ukraine. All right, interesting. So turning to Indonesia, President Joko Widodo last week ordered ministers of his cabinet to end calls for extending his time in office. Speculation has persisted for months that President Jokowi would pursue a constitutional amendment to the current two-term limit or postpone the 2024 presidential elections based on proposals floated by senior cabinet officials. Now, President Jokowi on April 10th appeared to publicly put these rumors to rest in remarks at an election committee meeting. So, Simon, what has been the public reaction to proposals for an extended Jokowi presidency? There was a public opinion survey from March conducted by uh, Saiful Mujani Research and Consulting, and that survey seems to suggest that most Indonesians are not on board with Jokowi extending the two-term presidential limit. And although President Jokowi has attempted to dampen speculation that he plans to stay in power, you know, his efforts haven't been enough to stop students in multiple cities across the country from holding large protests. So switching notes here, former Goldman Sachs banker Roger Ang was found guilty by jury in New York on charges of conspiracy to violate U.S. anti-bribery laws, launder money, and circumvent internal controls at Goldman in his work related to Malaysia's 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund. He now faces up to 30 years in prison as a result. Whoa, 30 years in prison. So um, let's back up for a second for those who don't know, can you explain a little bit what the 1MDB scandal is and what Goldman Sachs has to do with it? Definitely. This is some interesting stuff. So 1MDB was a development fund run by the Malaysian Ministry of Finance with the goal of investing in the Malaysian people and economy. However, this fund was also being used to line the pockets of Malaysian businessmen and government officials, including the former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak. These individuals were able to siphon money from the fund with help of Goldman employees like Roger Eng, along with Tim Leisner, 
who at the time was the chairman of Goldman Sachs Southeast Asian offices. It sounds like a big deal. So how big was this operation exactly? Massive. It's estimated that from 2009 until 2015, around $4.5 billion was taken from the fund. Oh my goodness. So that is truly wild. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Danny, for stopping by to help out. Thanks for having me. All right. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Rappler's editor-at-large, Maritas Vitug, about the Philippine presidential election set to take place in just a few weeks on May 9th. We're going to see how it's going to shape up, so stay tuned. Hi, welcome to the first episode. I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, Alina Noor at the A Society Policy Institute and a special guest today, longtime friend Marites Vituk. Marites is one of the Philippines' leading journalists, editor-at-large at Rappler, and author of Rock Solid, How the Philippines Won Its Maritime Arbitration Case Against China. And that's not what we have Marites here to talk about today, but as many listeners probably know, there's an election coming up in the Philippines. Things are getting pretty exciting Marites, thanks for joining the podcast. And I wonder if if I could start off by just asking you what the current state of the presidential race is like in Manila. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I am I'm really excited to be here. The race here is intense and tense. We're having elections on May 9th. It's for many of us, it's an existential uh, election because uh, we fear the victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late dictator. He's leading the race by a wide margin. The second is the vice president, Lenny Robredo, who heads, who leads the opposition. So that's the puzzle of how the Marcuses were able to rehabilitate themselves, to rebrand themselves more than 30 years after they were deposed in a people power revolt in 1986. That's what's keeping us, uh, making us sleepless and giving us anxiety attacks because a victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. will go against everything we stand for. You know, democracy, because his father was a dictator. Transparency, his campaign is quite opaque. He's very selective about giving interviews. Accountability, he, his family, owes the Philippine government 23 billion pesos in estate tax they haven't paid. So all these issues are, are, are coming back and we see... Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. as a continuity of Duterte in the sense that he will be sliding back again our, our democracy. So we're recording on April 11th. It's just under a month until Filipinos go to the polls. Bongbong's been leading by 30 plus points most of the race. It looks like in the late last Pulse survey from last week, maybe uh, VP Lenny Robredo's closed that gap to more like 25 points. We'll have to see what the social weather station survey is like. But I mean, realistically, she's ha- she seems to have an enormous amount of grassroots support based on the rallies. I, I saw the flood of-, of pink-shirted supporters in Pampanga over the weekend. But do you really think that there's enough time left in this race for us not to say that it's a fait accompli? Well, uh, Lenny Robredo herself said that time is the enemy. That's why they're doing something new, which has never happened in past national election campaigns. The volunteers of Robredo are doing house-to-house campaign. House-to-house campaign in the Philippines is usually done in local elections you know, for mayors and congressmen. But this is the first time 
This is being done on a national scale, which means she has a huge number of volunteers doing this for her. That's the first thing that's quite different. Second, as I said earlier, is the surge of volunteerism. Again, this has never happened in past elections wherein supporters of Rebredo are organizing the rallies. These are not organized by political parties. These are organized by private citizens who have gotten together to support Robredo. And what we're seeing is that uh, local officials, mayors, congressmen, governors, are shifting to Robredo because they're just following their constituents. As you know, here in the Philippines, there are two kinds of votes, the retail vote, the market vote, and the command votes. The command votes are the votes which are organized by the local officials. So we're seeing the machine and the command votes following the retail votes in the Philippines. So again, this is uh, something new. And the intensity, if you ask those who have campaigned in past elections, Robredo herself, Senator Pangilinan, who's running for vice president, he has said in interviews that the intensity and the energy and the emotions in the rallies this is the first time they've seen this high energy, high level of involvement. Some are citing a similarity between this campaign and the election campaign of Cory Aquino in 1986, but the context then was different. But the enthusiasm is very palpable and it seems to be similar to 1986. Maritas, can you tell us a little bit about who's behind the leadership in this election campaign of Bongbong Marcos, who are his supporters and how is he maintaining his lead? Yes, Bongbong Marcos, you know, his support cuts across all economic classes from the rich to the poor. Here in the Philippines, the biggest base of uh, voters comes from the poor. The survey outfits call it Class D. So that's the among the poorest in the Philippines. And What's interesting is that Bongbong Marcos used to be the top choice of the young voters, the 18 to 24 years old. But this has shifted now to Lenny Robredo. And, you know, uh, Marcos Jr. started to um, rebrand himself and his family as early as 2016 when he ran for vice president and lost. But other academics and researchers, so it was even earlier, when they populated YouTube, social media with uh, videos that revise our history. There are like hundreds of videos saying that under his late father, the Philippine economy was at its golden age, which was already debunked by economists. So many already academics and historians have debunked this, yet, you know, it keeps being repeated. So. And two studies already, recent studies by universities here, show that Bongbong Marcos is the biggest beneficiary of this information. He has, has the most to gain, while Lenny Robredo is the biggest victim of this information. So Robredo is playing catch up. She herself said that when she was vice president, she did not really you know, mind all this disinformation because she really had no plans of running for president. She thought that she could just do a good job, it will speak for her, for herself. But now she has to fight her team. They have to fight and debunk a lot of 
fake news about her and her lack of intelligence, her poor performance as vice president. To be fair to Lenny Robredo, she's one of the best performing national officials. When she criticized him on the war on drugs, it really irritated him. It really made him angry. So he disinvited her from cabinet meetings. So she, on her own, with her limited budget, she went around the country setting up livelihood projects for a number of communities in the Philippines. So she had this program of poverty alleviation in, in very concrete projects in many parts of the country. So when you listen to her during her campaign, it's fascinating because in almost every city or town she goes to and she speaks, she reminds them of what she has done, even if she lost. You know, in the Philippines, if you some politicians, if they lose in a certain area, they neglect these areas. You know, they punish them. They don't help them. But Robredo did the opposite. She helped uh, the communities, even in places where she lost in 2016. Marita, this is an election where misinformation and disinformation is rife, as it was the last time around. And Rappler, uh, where you work, played a huge role in covering and analyzing the scale of online disinformation then. We're dealing with our own problems of disinformation here in the U.S., most especially what we now call the big lie, this myth believed by a pretty significant chunk of former Donald Trump supporters who believe that he actually won the election. And I imagine that there's a whole lot of Marco supporters out there who believe that he actually won the VP race in 2016, despite the Supreme Court ruling that there was no evidence of that. If Lenny actually is able to close this gap and this becomes a tight race, what are the chances that either camp actually accepts the results? That's correct. You know, uh, that's why the, the vote watching and the count are very, very important that they be transparent. We have a nationwide volunteers group of watchers. They're credible. They've done this in past elections, so their work is very important. There's also a, a group of volunteers for Robredo who will be doing a parallel count apart from this nonpartisan count. So that's very, very important. We anticipate what you said, Greg, that if it will be a tight race, and it may be a tight race, then it will be difficult for whoever loses maybe to accept the results. So this will really be a, a cliffhanger down to the wire election. So May 9, and we, may, we will know the results in a day or two because of it's, a, it's no longer a manual count. We, do, uh, we have machine count. And you're right. What will happen after that, you know, will also be very uh, important process of this election. The Philippines has a tradition of these big names dominating local politics, domestic politics. Marcos Jr. is now running. Prior to this, it was Noynoy Aquino. So is the Philippines sort of resigned to this long-running era of dynastic politics? Oh, yeah, it's a huge problem here because of the weakness of political parties. It's a very personality-oriented political system. And families, instead of political parties, families are dominating the political race. There are pending bills in Congress called the anti-dynasty bills. 
because uh, we have it in the constitution, but there is no implementing law. But of course, not none of these bills pass because of the vested interests in Congress. Maybe half, more than half of those members in Congress belong to families or dynasties who are in politics. And number two, there's also been a pending bill in our Congress to reform, to strengthen political parties, to sanction politicians who shift, who are political butterflies, that they not be allowed to run if they shift you know, within two years. And there's part of it is also for state subsidy for political parties so that we don't depend you know, on vested interests on private sector. It's a very substantial bill, but again, it has not passed Congress. That's why we need basic reforms in our uh, political system to get rid of these dynasties. But I think you're right. And, you know, it may take some time. This has been with us for many, many years already. That's why this, this election is also significant because Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and his running mate, Sara Duterte, represent dynastic politics. They're big dynastic families. On the other hand, Lenny Robredo does not belong to a dynasty. So the contrast is, is really glaring. Marites, let's, let's talk about the likely policy impact of a Marcos or a Robredo win. I don't know if you, you saw the piece over the weekend by Alvin Kamba in Nikkei Asian Review, in which he argues that Marcos will lead to an increase in Chinese influence in, in the Philippines. And I like Alvin's work a lot, but it struck me that China worked pretty hard to influence the Duterte administration for the last six years. They've tried to pour money into the Philippines, although it's failed. They certainly increased influence ops. And China's less popular today among the Philippine public and the Philippine elite than it was six years ago when Duterte took office. And that's with a President Duterte who is ideologically anti-American and has been since he was in college. It you know, took him a matter of months to go to Beijing and declare that his relationship with the U.S. was dead. And yet he couldn't overcome the bureaucratic inertia of the U.S.-Philippine alliance. By all accounts, Bong Bong Marcos doesn't have that kind of ideological commitment to much of anything that Duterte had. So I, I, I question whether we should really expect the Marcos administration to be as determined to undermine the alliance or move toward China. I, I would imagine that a Marcos administration would more kind of blow in the wind and would lean toward China, would lean toward the U.S., but is probably going to let the armed forces of the Philippines and the Departments of Foreign Affairs and National Defense do what they want to do, which at this point is clearly tighten the alliance with the Americans, modernize the armed forces, and try to dissuade Chinese aggression. Am I being naive? Should we be more worried about a Marcos administration than I am? No, I think Ferdinand Marcos Jr. will continuity of Duterte's policy when it comes to China, although without the ideological background and the curses and the language. Marcos Jr. has said a number of times in interviews that he will continue Duterte's policy. And he said that he has friends in the Chinese embassy and that they've been talking about allowing Filipino fishermen to fish in Scarborough Shoal. So sounds like Duterte. However, he also said that he will not leave the alliance with the U.S. I mean, in so many words, because Duterte was very dramatic about saying goodbye to the U.S. and depending on China. I think Bong Bong will, as you said, he will uh, let the military 
continue its activities. They're so Im- embedded. Philippine military and the U.S. have increased their number of joint exercises here in the Philippines. So that will continue. And, you know, uh, what I'm anxious about is we don't know who the advisors of Marcos Jr. are. Unlike Duterte, we, we seem to know who his advisors were during the campaign. We had Finance Secretary Carlos Dominguez. You know, we knew who the people who were surrounding him at the time. The Bongbong Marcos team is very opaque. We have no idea who is advising him on foreign policy, on the economy. In fact, Marcos Jr. is the only candidate who has no written platform. You have to Google the issue and find out what he has said on the issue. All the rest have platforms. But you know, it doesn't really work here. This shows, clearly shows that Filipino voters don't really care much about platforms. And what's interesting also is that I think Marcos Jr. can be sensitive to public opinion because when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, he was asked in an interview about his position and he said, oh, the Philippines should be neutral. We should not take sides. And our Department of Foreign Affairs voted in the General Assembly to condemn the Russian invasion. The Department of Foreign Affairs issued a strong statement against Russia. And then he changed his mind. He issued a statement saying, yeah, he supports the Foreign Affairs Department's position and condemns Russian, Russia's invasion. So he changes his mind, I think, also based on public opinion. But as I said earlier, the question is, who will his team be? We have no idea. He's very elusive, very secretive. It's very difficult to even get an interview with him. I, I can certainly say that here in Washington, it feels like we've learned some lessons from 2016 when the U.S. was clearly blindsided by Duterte's victory and hadn't spent enough time reaching out to him or his team. The Biden administration isn't going to make that mistake again. They know that they don't get a say in who becomes president of the Philippines, so they're going to reach out to Team Robredo, Team Bongbong. You're seeing U.S. Indo-Pacific Command working with the AFP to try to get as much done on the alliance as they can between now and the end of June when, when the inauguration will be so that they'll have all of these programs at the EDCA sites and, and other things already underway. And presumably that bureaucratic inertia will insulate the alliance, you know, make it more difficult for a new administration to try to radically reverse policy. Maritas, I'd love your take on where you see this all going. What is it that Filipinos want most out of the outcome of this election? Presumably it's domestic, but what's the larger picture that we should take away from what comes out of this election? Well, of course, the top campaign issues are all related to the economy. A national survey was conducted, I think, months ago, and jobs, number one, number two, food on the table, and then uh, inflation, they're worried, people are worried about inflation. So it's all has to do with the economy, especially because during the pandemic, the two year, we're just coming out of almost two years of, of lockdown and quarantines. Our economy is in bad shape. Plus the war in Ukraine is affecting uh, our, the cost of energy is going up. So the next president, will really have a lot on his or her plate, uh, mainly uh, economic problems to resolve. So number two is that 
we, the Philippines, if Marcos Jr. wins, I think we'll continue to be on a democratic decline, as I said earlier, because of he's already showing his resistance to transparency and accountability. And what will happen to all the cases against his family? The Philippines has yet to collect so many billions of pesos from those stolen by his family. And he's aware of this. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. knows of this. He is the co-executor of the estate. So in two directions, on the economy and on democracy, these are all going to be on the ballot. In fact, democracy will be on the ballot on May 9. All right, Marita, thank you so much for joining us. Alina, uh, thanks, of course, and we'll do it again in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Thanks again for joining us for our very first episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org. Again, that's searadio at csis.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. We're new on the scene, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Laurel Vibazon is our producer. Our interns are Megan Sullivan, Drake Tien, and Hazen Williams. Production support from Danielle Fallon. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Elena Noor. My name is Simon Tranhudis. And I'm Danielle Fallon. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.